0: Good Old Days podcast. I am Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And this is our third installment of Suffragist Saturday. So welcome back. This week, we're discussing men and the suffrage movement. So allyship, which is a, a term that I think gets a lot of, of use nowadays. So let's let's look at what allyship looked like for women's suffrage, women's enfranchisement. <laughs> this, I think... This really stuck out to me. I brought this up to Jasmine as, as a possible topic for Suffragette Saturday, simply because I watched a, a video, a C-SPAN video, and it was a an hour and a half panel discussion. Um, that included three female historians, and it was all about the role of men in the women's suffrage movement. I think it took place in October of 2019. It's online. It's free. It's amazing. You should go look at it. Um, But it just, I don't know what happened, but it totally bolstered my excitement because I love the idea of Both sexes coming together to work towards rights of the disenfranchised. I love that idea. And I don't think that suffrage, the women's movement, would have been possible without dissenters who worked within the status quo and their willingness to change the status quo. So without men at the government level, at uh, the political, you know, politics, money, business, I mean, men dominated all of these public spheres, and without at least a little bit of support, I don't think women could have made the traction that they did. But what do you think, Jasmine? I think that's probably a pretty a pretty radical thing to say. I think I might get some haters. <laughs> but yeah,
1: <laughs> you you might allyship is vital. Yeah. Like it wasn't that men gave women the right. It It's not that I mean, we don't want to talk about men in a women's movement, particularly. But unfortunately, the more that we studied this, it just wouldn't have happened. We live in a patriarchal state. Pa- I can speak. We live in a patriarchy, patriarchal society that is focused around men. Men have, or had at least, still have. I think we're better. But
0: yeah. So, I mean, so let's think about when we went to the suffragist exhibit at the Tennessee State Museum. Okay. So the temporary exhibit that the Tennessee State Museum has up right now is it's a really in-depth, beautiful look at the women's movement Basically leading up to ratification, and so you know there are pictures of Ann Dallas Dudley, there are pictures of Ida B. Wells, and countless other women who spent you know countless hours working tirelessly for enfranchisement of women in the United States. And I think it's the, the second that you say, well, what about the men who helped? People people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it at all. It's like, why is that important? Why are you going to give credit for a women's movement to? Men, but the the sad fact of it is that without male support, in in if you look at the society that we had in 1910, women had no rights. They had no political recourse. Right? I mean that. How the hell are you going to change the status quo if no one's willing to throw you a bone right that the whole point of the suffrage movement was to amend the constitution, not to completely overhaul and and redo the constitution, so they wanted to have rights within the society as it existed, and in order to gain that traction, you have to have people who work. And exist within the system and have power within the system providing allyship, right?
1: Yeah. And in a system that is built by men for men, at this point in time, it's men that have the money, the power, the property, everything. I mean, women didn't have rights to any of that. Like your husband was the head of the family. So everything he did reflected on you as well.
0: And that was a main argument for the anti-suffragists was that women were already represented in government by their fathers and their husbands.
1: Absolutely. Women obviously are their own people. We are our own people. You know, I would hate to think of what would have happened if any of my exes had to represent me. Oh, God. You probably feel a little bit differently. But still, you want your own personship in your relationship that it changes the whole power dynamic of that and you can disagree on politics but still you know have a good a good thing going right
0: you can still have a relationship with somebody if you disagree with them on politics but if you have no voice if you have no
1: vote and you don't agree with your husband you're fucked well yeah and how do you change your situation how do you how do you do anything without your own voice I think that's a really big point. So although we are going to be discussing the men in this side of things, because of the way that society was built and structured at this point, they had to be a part of it. Male allyship was essential. You had to have it in order to get anything done, unfortunately. And that's not, we're not saying that's the way it should have been or the way that it should be. It was the way it was.
0: And a few of the men that we're going to talk about, they were very open about the fact that when men spoke on behalf of the women's movement, that that, that wasn't the focal point. It's the women that should get the the credit. It's the women that should get the attention. And namely, I'm thinking of Frederick Douglass. At the Seneca Falls Convention in the 1840s. I'm thinking of Oswald Garrison Villard, who helped establish the Men's League for Women's Suffrage in New York in 1910. Um, These men specifically were extremely cognizant of the necessity of women to be at the forefront, the visibility of women at the forefront of the women's movement. And Found themselves very comfortable working in the in the margins to help make changes and to help grease the wheels to get these things moving to get women's suffrage in a position to where it had a chance to actually be granted by you know the as an amendment to the constitution. So it's just a really interesting side of history of, of the suffrage movement that I don't think gets a lot of, of of um visibility simply because of the reasons that we were talking about um but the, one of the one one scholar i'm going to call out here who has essentially pioneered this research uh, her name is Brooke Kroger and i believe she is a professor at New York University and she wrote a book called Suffragents and it's it, i believe it just came out recently um i think it is available on Amazon but she she dives in and talks a lot about the men's league for women's suffrage specifically in New York so um, we're going to we're going to use a little bit of her research here and she did a great job so please go go read her book. But yeah, so let's 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 get into this a little bit. While there have always been men in support of the women's movement, even if it was a little sparse in the beginning, um the actual organization like a league of of men for women's suffrage didn't occur until 1874. So there was a short-lived league, and it was the Young Men's Women Suffrage League, um, and it, it it dissolved after about 80 meetings. But that was like the first official men's suffrage group in the United States. And that was in the 1870s, and and after that, there's really not an official organization formed. And um, Brooke Kroger told a really interesting story in that C-SPAN video that I was just talking about, the, the panel discussion about men in the women's movement. She told a really interesting story about how the second foray into Men's League of Women's Suffrage, this is in about 1908, 1909, came about because the suffragists, famous suffragists... Anne Compton Sanderson came to the United States from England about 1908, and she embarks on a lecture circuit around the United States. And she made a lot of of comments and uh, assertions that in England, men generally were more supportive of the women's suffrage movement than they were in America, and that American men were Their support was virtually non-existent. And this starts gaining a little bit of traction in the papers and it gains a little bit of visibility. Now, around the same time, the president of NASA, so the National American Women's Suffrage Association, her name was Anna Howard Shaw. She wrote to a journalist named Oswald Garrison-Villard. He was a a pretty interesting uh, uh, progressive character At the time, he was writing for uh, the Nation and the New York Evening Post. He was one of the founding members of the NAACP. He was really well known. He had given uh, quite a few speeches on the suffragist movement. And So Anna Howard Shaw was writing him a letter asking him to come and speak at an upcoming convention. And though Oswald was unable to commit, he said in a letter to her, and this again, this is a story that was told by Brooke Kroger at the C-SPAN, panel. But he said, well, I can't, you know, I don't have the time or the uh, availability to to speak at this upcoming convention. I would like to help you form a men's league for women's suffrage. And Anna Shaw, Anna Howard Shaw, responded and said, this is not a new idea. We tried this before. No thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. This is the women's movement. And Oswald Villard you know, made the case like th- th- no. I think we could do this. I think we could find a group of men to to take up the cause, and it would be very strategic. from From that point on, he starts working to find people to spearhead this. and And what he does is he gets in contact with Rabbi Stephen Wise, who is a pretty famous progressive activist. He gets in contact with John Dewey, who was a professor at Columbia, and they spearhead the effort to form the men's league of women's suffrage it's going to be headquartered in new york and uh one of john dewey's students was a man named max easton and max easton just like oswald garrison villard he was he came from a long line of uh activists suffragists feminists his sister was crystal eastman who was a a feminist lawyer she was pro-birth control pro-suffragist pro pro pro-women's rights and they they managed to get 150 wealthy elite new york men to commit to this cause and in 1911 may 6 1911 89 men from the newly formed men's league of women's suffrage they marched on behalf of women's suffrage and this allegedly was just i mean the the people lining the streets they were heckling them they were catcalling them they were calling their masculinity into question Laughing at them, essentially the spectacle of a man standing up for women's rights made rights made these men look weak and foolish. But amazingly, these men took it in stride. According to Brooke Kroger, she read uh, uh, journal entries and diary entries of some of these men who were just invigorated by this action. They were ready to take it on. And then the next year, over a thousand men marched in that same annual parade which I think was pretty amazing.
1: Well, and I think I read that 20,000 men like nationally would be a part of men's leagues. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Considering that by 1909, there wasn't a one. There's not a single men's league. And then by 1920, by the time the 19th Amendment is ratified, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of men who have joined the cause and i think honestly uh what paved the way for that was this initial leak the it, i mean it, this is essentially the it, it's the new york branch the men's league of women's suffrage i think their their hq is 118 waverly place in new york city but I think what this showed was that these men weren't going to die of embarrassment for coming out and publicly supporting the women's movement. and And all of a sudden, more and more people start to trickle in, more and more men start showing up and start... You know, joining the effort, working behind the scenes, um, you know, hosting, like talking to stubborn senators, talking to to men in power who otherwise wouldn't have ever given the women's movement a thought. Well, they're having their minds changed by wealthy, affluent, pro women suffrage men all over the country, and this is going to help take. The women's movement from a really an internalized movement, right, where where the women are talking to each other within the movement to a national movement where now you're addressing the public at large. Let me tell you why the women's movement will benefit you and make your life better as the everyday average American woman. And these men were here for it. They were ready. They were there for it. And I think that was a that's a really interesting um, aspect of the of the women's movement that we don't talk about. So not only New York men were involved in this, right? Yep. So who else?
1: Well, let's see. I mean, we could go into Tennessee now. Tennessee becomes the 36th state to ratify the 19th Amendment and really the state that, well, tips it over the edge. Once Tennessee ratifies, that means that women are enfranchised to vote.
0: I do have a question. If Tennessee had not ratified would they have just gone on to another state or was it over at that point?
1: You know, I'm not sure, actually.
0: I've, what, the things I read, it sounded like it was done, like, that, like it had to happen in Tennessee or it, it, the movement was dead.
1: So I think Tennessee was the only state that had a, like a close enough, you know, it could have gone either way that it would have worked. And if they had tried it in other states that had not yet ratified it, it likely wouldn't have made it through. And that's why it was kind of kiltered on which way Tennessee goes. And there were a couple of different people that were instrumental in getting this vote over to the side of suffrage. So one of those people was Harry Byrne, who was a Republican. And the suffrage polls listed him as undecided, but really he was anti-suffrage. That's the side he had been on. So um, one of the uh,
0: panel speakers of that C-SPAN interview that I watched, said that Harry Burns was sympathetic to the women's movement, but his constituents had made it clear that they didn't want him to vote for, for suffrage. And that it's it's his mother that turns the, the tide for Harry Burns, just to throw that in there.
1: But he's still, so he's voting with his constituents, which is technically what he's supposed yeah. to do. But yes. <laughs> Voting with your mother, I don't
0: think is what you're supposed to do. That's, you know what I mean? Like It's <laughs> a like
1: real gray area in this. But after like the first vote, they're at a tie. And so what do they do? So they have to like reconvene. They have to do a tiebreaker. Um, and they decide to re-vote. And his mother, in the meantime, sends him a note. And she says, hurrah and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I noticed some of the speeches against. They were bitter. I have been watching to see how you stood but I have not noticed anything yet. Be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification.
0: <laughs> That's
1: awesome. <laughs> and it's important to note he's the youngest um he's the youngest person to be elected. So he's I think like 24 at this point. So he's far from being a boy but still it just I think She knew exactly how to say it to play on his doubts of, oh, I don't want, (laughs) you know, I am, I am a good boy, you know, I'm going to listen to my mother, but also I can make my own decisions and I'm not going to listen to my constituents and (laughs) I'm going to vote for ratification. And so he does, he changes his vote. And that often is credited with winning, being the winning vote, because it tilts things in the side of suffrage. But there's also a story I came across, um, and there is, again, a solidly anti-suffrage, this time Democrat rather than Republican, by the name of Banks Turner, who was voting anti-suffrage. Again, that's what his constituents wanted. And... When they go to do the second vote, he finally falls in line with his party because the Democrats are the ones who wanted suffrage. And he votes aye, that he wants suffrage, which kind of shocks everyone. And that also helps switch the vote back over to being pro-suffrage. So, uh, yeah, they get... Fifty of the ninety nine votes in Tennessee and Tennessee had ratified the 19th Amendment. All right. Interesting. I love that. That's a good story. Yeah. So that's two of the men here in Tennessee, which, of course, is local to us and really important to the overall ratification of this amendment in, in the Constitution. Do you know the story of Thaddeus
0: W. Sims, the Tennessee congressman?
1: I recognize the name, but I don't know the story. Tell me.
0: So in I think it was when Tennessee was voting to grant partial state suffrage, um, but he apparently broke his arm and shoulder and showed up without it being set because it was the day of the vote. And he stayed the entire time to sway any state senators who, you know, otherwise could have been swayed the other opposite direction for non you know voting nay so that that guy showed up for the women's movement for sure i mean just i'm sure he was in excruciating pain but stayed through the entire proceeding the entire day of voting um just to make sure that it it passed the you know limited suffrage in the state of tennessee because for a lot of states that was the first step right
1: yeah and tennessee i think i think they only had suffrage what two months before the amendment passes yeah they
0: they did this several times um and like I think they did it in 1915 I think they did it in 1918 and finally they got limited state suffrage or limited suffrage for women in nine like three months in 1920 before the actual ratification vote so that would be I mean that's a pretty big indicator right I mean if if states didn't vote for even partial suffrage in their state legislator, I think it's probably an indication that they're sure as hell not gonna support an amendment to the US Constitution. But yeah, he is a pretty interesting guy. Lucretia Mott, the famed suffragist, her her husband, James Mott, was a was a big ally and activist. And um he was actually the chairman of the Seneca Falls Convention. So that was the one in in the 1840s that a lot of people attribute to they they attribute the birth of the women's movement to Seneca Falls. But actually, I've been. Reading and listening to a couple different um, podcasts, reading different books and periodicals, that they are a lot of people are arguing now that the birth of the, of the women's rights movement actually happened earlier than that. in Like the 1830s, even the 1820s, that these were these types of meetings of women to discuss suffrage. Uh, they were going hand in hand with abolitionist sentiment, you know, so this is the women's movement was birthed a little bit before the Seneca Falls. But that's just, I guess, a manner, matter of opinion. I'm not totally sure. But yeah, so the husbands and fathers of these early, early suffragists, I think were absolutely essential to at least getting it off the ground. I mean,
1: how it took another hundred years, right? So. And then I think we should end with this quote from Frederick Douglass. I think this really solidifies kind of what we've been talking about with allyship, all good causes are mutually helpful. The benefits accruing from this movement for the equal rights of women are not confined or limited to women only. They will be shared by every effort to promote the progress and welfare of mankind everywhere and in all ages.
0: Man, you you, you can't go wrong ending on a quote by Frederick Douglass.
1: I think this is a, a really good quote because this can be applied to literally any movement, any civil rights movement, it doesn't have to be talking about suffrage or women's rights, but all good causes are mutually helpful. So if this cause is going to help one group, it's going to help all groups. And that's what he's saying here. And that applies to women's rights, civil rights, gay rights, whatever you want to put it to. Absolutely.
0: Touche. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed the third installment of our Suffragists Saturday series. If you liked what you heard today, I want you to head to Apple Podcasts and drop us a five-star review. Also, please visit our website, thegoodolddayspod.com. There's a contact form if you'd like to communicate with us. You can also get access to all of our uh, previous episodes. And you, there's a link to support the show on the website if you feel so inclined. So thank you all so much. Jasmine. Social stuff? What's going on with social stuff?
1: Social stuff, yeah. So, as always, follow us Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I think that's all we've got right now. If you just search for the Good Old Days Podcast or the Good Old Days Pod on all platforms except Twitter, where we are the Good OD Pod. And if you like this series, if you want to be vocal about your vote, And really, we just want to see that you are voting, what your voting plan is. Um, Hashtag Suffragist Saturday. Let us know. Um, Our early voting starts. Well, it will have already started by this point. Our early voting is already underway. And yeah, we're excited to, well, be in this election season.
0: We're excited to exercise our constitutional right that was so hard fought for by men and by women. By women and by men, allyship is absolutely essential. And uh, yeah, this this makes me really proud. <laughs> I, I just I like this whole series. This is really good. So, all right. Well, thank y'all so much. We hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. Bye.